Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is about a man named St. Fiacre. He's an Irish monk in the Middle Ages, and he had a really important title because he's the patron saint of hemorrhoids. Later, these were actually called St. Fiecker's Curse, and he contracted the agony of the anus while gardening one day and mysteriously cured it by sitting on a rock. And going back to 1999, Ireland decided that his honor had gone unacknowledged for too long and dedicated a garden for him at the Irish National Stud in Tully County, Kildare, or Kildare. I don't actually speak Irish that well. Sorry to all of you butter-making friends of mine. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. On that note, today's guest is someone I'm really, really pleased to have on the show. It's Andrea Herman, and Andrea is and one of the leading authorities in hemp. She knows just about everything there is to know about hemp when it comes to its use industrially and specifically as a health thing. This is a conversation that 
I've really wanted to to bring out into the the forefront. Now that we've had a few states in the U.S. legalize hemp growing and legalize even pot growing, there are quantifiable and real health benefits that can come from using this herb medically. And there's no reason that I can think of that we shouldn't allow it to be used as uh, as an herb, as something that, that grows in our environment. So I'm really pleased at the regulatory changes and I want to talk about health and quality and things like that. So Andrea, welcome to the show. Oh, Dave, nice, nice to meet you and thanks for having me on. It's good to finally be here. You have an interesting degree in hemp. Can you tell me about that? Yes, my basic degree coming from Missouri Southern State University in Joplin, Missouri is focused on something called ecolonomics. And ecolonomics was keyed by Dennis Weaver, which was from Gunsmoke, uh, and his alma mater was Joplin Junior College when it was a two-year school. So while I was there, Dennis Weaver came forward with a concept of a capstone course called Ecolonomics, which takes uh, biology, economics, political science, and sociology and puts them all together and says, how do you use those three or those four areas of study to focus on some sort of sustainability? So very similar to incorporating a recycling program into your office, why does that happen? Is it economics? Is it the politics? Is it the social framework? Or is it just the biology of recycling and the reduction of waste and trees and those types of things? So I used that, which was just a course. You to take a couple of courses additional to get this certification. I turned that into a bachelor's of general studies and based my bachelor's program on those philosophies focusing on industrial hemp. Now, you're Canadian, right? Or do you just live in Canada? I'm now what I call Canaric and I hold dual citizenship. I'm on that similar path. I I live in Canada, but I'm American and maybe someday I'll have a couple of passports instead of just one. Uh, Certainly certainly my kids will. So it's, uh, it's a good thing to do. What are the differences, actually, this would be fascinating. What are the differences between the government's perspective on hemp, between what you see in most of the U.S. and what you see in Canada? Are they substantially different? It's very substantially different. The hemp regulations came into play in Canada in 1998, so March of 1998. Prior to that, the government had already been keen on the fact of looking at industrial hemp as an agricultural crop, period, saying, look, they're cultivating in Germany and other places around the world. It's a crop we historically cultivated in Canada, and that was already on their radar. There were people that had come forward saying, hey, look, I'm from the farm base, I'm from the industry base. So they came on board very early and actually facilitated research trials prior to any legislation being put in place federally, which was great basically saying, hey, we're not going to just shove farmers into an agricultural crop that we don't even know is really going to grow here. So it's been a very government-funded, government-led, government-initiated, and a really great partnership between government and industry to push forward the, the push forward the sector. So I'm working on creating a small organic farm outside Victoria, BC. And Mm -hmm. should I be planting hemp on it? Am I going to go to jail if I do that? Uh, No, you won't go to jail as long as you've got the proper licensing in place. It is a it is a licensable crop. So you still we are still controlled in Canada. We're still controlled underneath 
Office of Controlled Substance. The hemp industry, the industrial hemp regulations are a subset of the Narcotics Act, which then allows for cultivation. Now, in Victoria, for or any small producer across the prairies, the minimal amount of acreage for commercial production in Canada is 10 acres. So that's the amount of space that you have to delineate for your crop to grow and cultivating that 10 acres um, for to get a commercial license. So if you want to have three acres, you cannot do that unless it's for research and then that gets a separate research license. Awesome. So that would be a pretty substantial chunk of my organic farm. And since I want to eat what grows on it <laughs> and not just hemp seeds, <laughs> maybe I'll have to find some other way. Uh, but that's uh, yeah, exactly it's awesome that we even have the ability to do that without you know, without having to put up tarps and hide from helicopters and things, which is what normally happened in the Bay Area um, up in the Santa Cruz Mountains uh, where, <laughs> where I used to live. Um, and, and that absolutely. I mean, and the nice thing about Canada is that we have full cannabis framework, whether it be access to medical cannabis. We do have a federal way, no matter where you're living in this country, you access it the same way. And that's a major difference. What your question about happening in the, in the United States is that here we have a federal law. I don't think you're Quebec, you're in B.C., you're in Alberta, Manitoba. You are you are following the same regulations. So it's very even playing field. You understand them completely. There's no different interpretation of the regulation based on where you're living at. In the U.S., we have, of course, our federal part, which I'm sure we'll get to that. But each state then has its own regulations they put in place. I'm I'm intrigued by that fact. Do you see down south of the border in the U.S., do you see a future for there being just federal regulation for this versus this patchwork where you never know quite what you can do and that there's banking problems in the U.S. and it seems like none of that's happening in Canada? Like, it, Are they going to fix it in the U.S. or is it still 20 years away? It will be fixed. I think we're going to have to have some uniformity when we're talking about you know, what the THC levels is, the processing, food security, uh, plant breeders' rights, these types of issues that will come in underneath the USDA at some point in the journey, um, especially like certified organic. Those are going to come in. And I can say it's been very interesting. Like the USDA came forward with um, a letter a couple of months ago saying that if you're a farmer in a state that legalized industrial hemp and you're growing in accordance with those regulations, you would not be denied benefits you could apply for through the USDA. This is huge. So this is saying, hey, the USDA is recognizing industrial hemp as an agricultural crop and respecting the rights of the states and those people to vote in the, the permission for farmers to cultivate industrial hemp as a food and fiber crop. So we're starting to see that come on and I don't think it'll take 20 years, but we'll definitely have a hemp office in the USDA. That's what I envision in the future. Is it true that the constitution was written on hemp paper? It is true historically that hemp was used in a parchment paper. So part of, of the paper um, and in the drafts that went forward. Wow. Um, that's, uh, I, I've always heard that, but I never validated it, but I figured you would have. So it, it's shocking to me that we're cutting down trees when you could be growing a sustainable crop like this. Can you that's talk right. about the difference between cannabis and hemp? Like what are, what are the differences uh, from an agricultural perspective and from a legal perspective? 
Mm-hmm. Well, industrial hemp is cannabis. It's same as marijuana is cannabis. So hemp or industrial hemp and, and marijuana, those are just common names that we call portions of the cannabis plant. So the legal delineation is really based on the percentage of THC present in the flowering parts. That's what legally defines industrial hemp all around the world where legislation is in place. So we have in Canada in the field sample, it's 0.3%, THC or 3,000 parts per million. And then further from that, once you know that the derivatives or the protein powder, the hemp oil, the hauled hemp, shelled hemp, hemp hearts, that all has to be tested also for THC. That's in our federal regulations here in Canada. The U.S. regulations, most all of the state regulations also base, base it on zero. And then if you look in Europe, it's 0.2%. Or if you look in Australia, it's 1% THC, all based on THC levels that makes it industrial hemp or then falls under outside of the industrial hemp regulations and can be picked up in some sort of other regulation framework. Um, That is, it's awesome that we're standardizing that. Now, that brings up another specter. How long would you predict until Monsanto has genetically modified hemp that's Roundup ready? Well, I mean, you can't stop a beast like that. <laughs> I mean, all that's, gonna, that's going to basically come down to contracting companies in the marketplace demanding a non-GMO uh, grown without the use of in-crop pesticides, uh, food food product. I mean, that's where it's going to narrow down to because we're not going to be able to stop and we're not stopping as, as I say, as a general industry um, saying, you know, we had uh, trials presented at the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance Conference last year about herbicide application in hemp production. They basically said it really didn't do much of any good for it or didn't, wasn't beneficial necessary, didn't make they yield so much more from the control plots with no spray on them. So it will boil down to what the consumer wants and what the contracts say, because farmers that are growing genetically modified crops and spraying those crops will continue to do so unless their contract says otherwise and the market demands it. Uh, if you're working We're- for Monsanto and you're listening to this, like, don't you dare. I'm watching you because we don't need any more of that exactly. crap. Exactly. And that's what I try to, you know, try to talk about when you're out there in the field is this. The nice thing about industrial hemp cultivation in Canada is that there are no registered pesticides for hemp food production in the entire country. So it's technically illegal for a farmer to spray his industrial hemp crop that's going for food unless it's in a particular one other province that has a minor use permit for fiber only production. And it's a herbicide for grassy weeds, which is typically not the problem. But it goes back to saying that it is illegal for a farmer in Canada in current regulations to spray his grain crop with any type of pesticide. So Canadian hemp might actually, hemp food products may actually be superior to North or to American hemp products because American hemp may be sprayed and Canadian hemp is not allowed to be sprayed. I'm not for sure what the regulations are for that, but I okay. do believe that the, the crops that are being grown are not being sprayed in the U.S. So I would never okay. want to say one would be over the other. Okay. What I would see really happening, Dave, is a real synergy amongst the United States growers and, and well, North American growers to be able to pool material together the same way that they handle chickpea and bean and other productions in 
if you look at what happens in like Montana, North Dakota, and in the prairies in Canada, is a very synergetic where they can bring them all to one bin, put them in, they're functioning in the same grading system. It's the same quality and integrity and pedigreed seed system. That's what I really see happening is a real collaboration amongst the, all, all the growers in North America in the United States and Canada particularly. One of the agricultural problems that I track in a lot of detail is mycotoxin in grain production. So depending on the environment, depending on where a grain is grown, and depending on how it's stored, things like corn, soy, wheat, and hops, all of those things can develop mold at different stages of the life cycle and different stages of production. And those molds are some regulated in different amounts in different countries and whatnot. Have we put in place comprehensive mycotoxin regulations on hemp seeds and hemp products? Because I know for the stuff you smoke, mold can seriously jack it up. It can actually jack you up if you smoke moldy weed. So like, it, it has the regulatory framework been there for mycotoxins in hemp? I would say yes. Here hey. in Canada, we do have, yes, absolutely. All in, I mean, it's it's part of the contract, so it goes down to the contract also. So when they're bringing in the grain, they're testing it at that point to make sure that it's free of E. coli, salmonella, other constituents that are part of like looking at the free fatty acid profile, these types of things. Is it contaminated in some way? And at that point, then it goes on to make the food product. Well, then the food product also has to go through a complete certificate of analysis according to federal mandated you know, a levels of these things being present or not present at all. And then it falls under a, a food safety issue. So we're making sure that that product going out doesn't contain high yeast and molds, doesn't contain E. coli, you know, has a free fatty acid profile that's within spectrum and fits the nutritional profile. So, so there's definitely a yeast and mold count. And there's also like the presence of aflatoxin, okra toxin, fusarus, uh, fusarium or fusarisin, the toxin that makes tricosithenes. Mm -hmm. Uh, is are those actually included? Do you know, and you may not know. It's kind of a strange question. It's just one that has a big impact on atherosclerosis and things. No, I and there are companies that do require that to be part of okay. the certificate of analysis. Now, some of those might not be on the standard certificate of analysis produced on every batch, unless okay. the company does require. It. And I do know from my past experiences that we had I had particular clients that wanted alpha toxin as part of their certificate yeah. of analysis. And so that one. test was ordered. Yeah. And those were ordered for them. So yes, I would say that companies are tracking that. And I can say that from my experience, like now moving into like the BRE certification with Manitoba Harvest and GFSI, these global food safety standards, we're starting to see these really come on board. And I, you know, just something like with gluten-free, well, this isn't one kernel can be enough to contaminate. So we've got to make sure that those tests are done. Um, I'm so pleased to hear that. I'm seeing that Europe is way ahead, particularly of the US and Canada tends to be ahead of the US on regulating these. And funny enough, even like China, some of their standards are better than North American standards, but others are much worse and you know, Brazil and Chile. So tracking what happens where is fascinating. And for a new agricultural commodity to come in, it's so smart to just put the standards in place at the beginning so you don't have to retrofit the system. I'm, I'm super stoked on that. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about like, you know, what, what amino acids do you get? Like, give me some of the health sides of hemp rather than just, you know, the, the hallucinogenic smoking sides. Uh, what, what do you get from it? 
Well, we're not going to smoke in our hemp anyway, so that's exactly. so that's one thing, right? Uh, so you you are getting you know some of those super long polyunsaturated fats like gamma-linoleic acid, GLA. Those are present in uh, borge and primrose oil. They're not present in olive oil, grapeseed oil, flax oil, sunflower oil other really nice oils. These are really good oils, but they do not contain some of these super long polyunsaturated. And once we enter those into the body, some of the listeners may know those are long, so they don't break apart as easily. So your body uses them as building blocks to move on on from there. And of course, the great spectrum of all of your omega-3, 6s, and 9s. In addition to having the the triple, the zinc, the iron, the copper, the magnesium, the manganese, uh, these types of things that our bodies need to actually function properly as that smooth, nutty taste. And then looking at also the highly digestible proteins. So really what you're taking in is a vegetable-based protein that's very highly digestible around that 98% digestibility. So you're digesting. So what's moving through is not filler. It's actually getting in your system and really helping to take up that protein. I did a lot of, of kind of analysis into vegetables as far as proteins. There's no doubt in my mind that the highest bioavailability vegetable source protein is hemp protein because it has the highest amount of IgG. Like it's it's generally uh, a good one. Um, I, I have some concerns about excessive omega-6 consumption, but your point about mm-hmm. GLA is also important because people don't know this, but if you're in ketosis, this fat burning mode uh, on a long-term basis, it tends to deplete GLA. And if you get like a comprehensive analysis of your red blood cells, you can actually see whether you're deficient in GLA. So there's a case to be made mm-hmm. for taking some, some hemp protein or hemp seeds just to get the GLA as long as I have the concern about excessive omega-6s uh, because they can uh, be incorporated in your cell membranes. So I think there's a role certainly for some hemp, uh, for some hemp oil, um, although I would be concerned about making it my primary source of oils because, well, it seems like mm-hmm. butter and, and coconut oil do well for that. Uh, and that's what I say. All these other oils, they're really good oils. So I never tell anybody like, you know, stop taking any other oil and have this as your only oil. No, have a diversity of oils in our diet. They're going to give you, like you say, those additional things um, that our body needs that lots of the other foods lack. Agreed. Like you want to get the right, the right amounts of the right oils in and uh, a single source of oil isn't going to do it for anyone on the planet. Totally there with you. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit because the medicinal uses of sativa particularly are are of interest to me. I've spoke at the recent Autism One conference and talked with a bunch of people. There's some really cool things going on with CBD oil. What are some of the other medical uses of cannabis? Kind of walk through the different areas where it's used and where it may have effects and where we know it has an effect. Well, there is a lot of ongoing research right now as it pertains to CBD, CBGV, CBN, I mean, all of these different cannabinoids present in the crop, in the plant, particularly whether or not it's being sequestered from industrial hemp there's, or, or medical cannabis or marijuana in this case. Right now in Canada, if we look at the, basically looking at what the law allows us to do here, in Canada, we're not allowed underneath the current reg, the regulations for industrial hemp to sequester any of the cannabinoids from the crop. So we're limited here 
on what we can do with with that portion. So we cannot harvest the crop in a fashion and then market that product based on CBD or based on THC or any of those components. So there is some legal framework that comes into play here in Canada. And then in the US also, there's some legal framework also. We've What we've seen right now coming from the Hemp Industry Association is that they've put out a statement talking about what is hemp oil. And what is hemp oil? Is hemp oil this culinary oil, this cold pressed from the seed? Is this hemp oil that is an essential oil produced from the flowering parts of the plant? Where does that fall in into in the regulations? So those are a lot of the questions that we have about, is it actually legal to have CBD across the market or is it not? With that said, there has been work on looking at the receptors in, in the body. And I don't pretend to be a uh, internal specialists on exactly how those things happen. But essentially we've all got receptors that are binding that are that they are finding are helping with, of course, as we know, seizures and epilepsy and fibromyalgia and inflammation. Um, there's been some really interesting research that's been published recently looking at the incorporation of cannabinoids and post-traumatic stress syndrome. So wow. there's a lot of Legitimate, yeah, a lot of legitimate research that's that's coming out now. Um, everything from using hemp and nanotechnologies to sequestering the medicinal properties, at looking at those cannabinoids, or even looking at as a as a natural insecticide to fight um, nematodes, which are prevalent all around the world in our agricultural system. I'm actually kind of relieved to hear the progress that's happening because not using some a crop that's this ubiquitous just it just it's dumb (laughs) so thanks for the work you've you've been doing on this um both on making it available on the the medical side um i I had a chance to sample some some very high-end cbd oil um it tasted kind of like licking a bong i would say you know i I took it non-encapsulated um not a particularly pleasant taste and I, i used a substantial dose of it it's hard to know over the course of a week whether it, it really impacted inflammation or not. I tend to, to get inflamed easily, especially if I travel and all. So I have a, a broad set of things I do to counteract that. And maybe it, maybe it added on, maybe it didn't. But some of the studies around things like autism and epilepsy and things like that, it clearly has some very specific effects on certain cytokines in the brain. And there's so much more work to be done on the research here. And now that the stuff is available, we can start doing the research on it. Um, is it legal mm-hmm. to buy CBD oil across the U.S. as long as there's not THC in it? Or are you still kind of at risk if you're in Alabama and you try and buy some CBD oil over the Internet? I think there's still a risk out there. I mean, right now, the legal framework, I think, is being investigated on, on multiple facets and looking at what's happening in the U.S. in each state state having its own regulations, at what point did those regulations sort of trump any sort of federal card on it? And really, I would need to have the, you know, official statement coming from the hemp industry associations, particularly on saying this is what the status is on the legal framework. It's obviously coming into the country. It's obvious that the government knows about it. And and so looking at that, is it legal? And states are passing legislation making it legal. So what about those states where it's not? So I always say you have to make sure within the state you're following any state access regulations pertaining to cannabis and that you know that that product is free for sale and that you're, you're really you know talking with your doctor about it and making sure that you're going about it in a way that you are not going to jeopardize the health of your family and the stability of your family over seeking a product. 
that that's really uh, really important, and I I foresee that happening better, especially because now Amazon finally caved and they're willing to pay sales tax to the different states. Uh, okay, if you're a state legislature and you realize people want to take something that doesn't get them high that might help their autistic kids, like how puritan mm-hmm. do you have to be to vote against that? Like it, <laughs> it's one of those things. Well, we got sales tax revenue here and people wanted it, and like, what was the harm? So I, I really exactly. expect that to, to progress. It just takes time because politics are slow. It, it takes time and, it, and we need to have that scientific documentation so that doctors feel comfortable, patients feel comfortable. And a lot of the patients with autism and are, are focused on our, the children. And we need to make sure that what we're doing is, is proper dosage and that it's delivered in a way that has all of those, you know, the quality parameters, the yeast and molds and bacteria and those things in check prior to that we completely understand uh, that that portion of it that they're you know if you're buying it from one place or another that that product is relatively the same the same way if you're buying hemp oil cold press hemp seed oil from one nativa or manitoba harvest or those brands living living harvest that you're going to get a same in, integrity of taste of product yep getting good quality out there is first and foremost for any any of these things and the more testing you do the better i i'm yeah. kind of surprised i've tested uh, some products I was thinking about doing, not hemp, but I tested a, a very high-end maca powder that I was thinking of using as an herbal adaptogen, and I found 13 parts per million of aflatoxin. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> that should not be there, and I don't care how high-end it is. Like, that's not a product I would carry, even though it's it's mm-hmm. a commonly used one. I'm not saying all maca has problems. I'm just saying when you dry any herb, that there is a good chance, if the drying parameters, the storage parameters weren't right, that these new aggressive strains of fungus that we created with our agricultural spraying can can take root on it. So I'm I'm really pleased to hear that that people are paying attention to this because um, mm-hmm. otherwise it's a risk for any other part of the food supply. And this new stuff, it's it's no more or less of a risk, but it is a risk. Um, mm-hmm. What what about like, taking hemp and using it to make buildings? Like how would you use it for building materials? Hemp can be used for building in, in multiple ways, whether, well, firstly, sort of how you get to that in that constituent that you need is you've got to have the stock decorticated. So that's removing the outer long fibers from the inner woody core or the herd. So bass fiber on the outside, a herd on the inside. You can use both of those products to build different types of building materials, whether it be a bat insulation. So using, um, you know, very common technology to make matting to make a bat insulation that would be a pink insulation replacement, or looking at something like hempcrete, which is a combination of the inner core, the herd, plus lime or a binder and water. And then you basically build a form and you pack it in there. There's also pre-made blocks that certain countries have that you actually just sort of order the blocks, you stack them up, and then you've got you've got a home in that structure. And then also you can go to something as simple as using straw bales. So uh, a straw bale house type of scenario um, into carpets, into pressed boards to make all of your cabinetry and and these types of things throughout the home. How water resistant uh, and how durable is like a hempcrete sort of uh, sort of building block? 
a hempcrete you would not be using in any place that you're expecting to take on a lot of water. So it's not something that goes below the earth. The nice thing about it is if it does get wet, it will dry out as it is a living, breathing wall. So as long as it has space to breathe and to, to, to have air, then it will dry out. And if you wanted to come in, if you did have some water damage, you would be able to then just come in and replace that portion of the wall and really reuse all of the material. So if something did happen and you've got your hempcrete wall, you can take all of that material, put it back into the mixer, add some water, and, and basically reconstitute it and, and reuse it. So it's kind of like Adobe where you'd make it with straw. Is that a pretty good analogy? It's similar. You're not using clay in a sense. It's lighter. It's fluffier. Um, and so basically when you're mixing the hempcrete, what you want the texture of the hempcrete to be like, so this is a term hempcrete for using the herd and the line binders with water, is you want it to be about a consistency of a snowball. So if I threw it at you, it's not going to hurt, but it's going to break apart, but it's going to stay intact. So that's what you're looking for. In addition, it's got, it's resistant to fire, it's resistant to molds, and these are things that are, you know, save us on so many levels, especially if we look at the rate of mold in, in our homes. So I'm flying around the country right now uh, talking with um, toxic mold experts, uh, some of the physicians, some of the home builders, some of the home remediation people looking mm -hmm. at, at what this is doing to people's health in agriculture uh, and in homes. And it's it's been fascinating because I, I've learned even more about it. But you're the first person I've ever asked about what how hemp would perform in an environment like that. I'm, I'm working right now on making a, a more permanent studio to record the Bulletproof podcast. Like if you look behind me, um, this is basically my kitchen <laughs> and it's, this is temporary. And behind the camera right now, like there's a barn being taken apart so that we can reconstitute it as a biohacking facility. We'll be able to have even better sound quality for listeners, better video and all that. Uh, and I'm looking at building using alternative techniques. I'm looking at things like that. So if you know someone's retrofitting a facility and say, I'm interested in sound deadening, is there like a specific mm -hmm. place I could go to learn more about how I can put hemp actually into the facility itself? Yeah, you can check out hemptechnologies.com. That would be one place to start. So that I am the current president of Hemp Technologies Global. So that's a start. And then we pair up with like Albic Designs down in North Carolina. They built the NOS house down there. There's work that's gone on here in, in Canada at looking at the acoustic properties of using hempcrete or using hemp press boards as, as part of the structure. So there is an innovation center in Winnipeg. And if you come up to the Canadian Trade Alliance Conference happening in November. We'll have a tour of the Comps Innovation Center. What they've done is they've used hempcrete blocks to, to surround the generator, the compressors. So when these things are running, before the, the facility was so loud, but now they've encased it in a hempcrete block. You pretty much almost can't hear this compressor running in an innovation center. So, you know, you got a lot of compression going on. So those are some of the also the characteristics is that it's really, you know, in one way sort of eats the sound, but doesn't make it a dead sound. So could I commercially buy hemp press board today? Yes, you can. Awesome. All right. I'm, I'm going to yeah. hit your website. That was hemptechnologies.com. 
Yes, exactly. Hemp-technologies.com. Hemp-technologies.com. All right, I'm going to hit it up and see if there's a way on on the ceiling because right now I'm concerned about standing waves and I I really want good sound quality for people who are driving so they don't have to hear stuff in the background. So I'll I'll see if there's a way to incorporate some of those uh, in the design because that would be really cool. And uh, I, I really like using sustainable things. Part of the whole Bulletproof philosophy is that you know, sustainability really matters because if you're going to live a very long time and feel really good, you actually want to live in the world that's still there a hundred years from now. <laughs> so you should think about yes, that. Yes. And, and our homes is a place where we spend most of the time. I mean, our homes and our offices and that for us that have home-based offices, these are the things. And I think about that myself in my own space about, you know, here I'm helping people build their dream homes, uh, living their hemp dream, which helps me live my hemp dream. And one of those is to definitely take my home from being the old farmhouse and take it to that level of, of living in that environment that I want to help people have. So we will all aspire to, to do that. Let's go back a bit to an area where I feel like I didn't ask you enough questions. We talked about eating hemp. And we talked about building hemp and we talked about writing the constitution on parchment that contained some hemp, um, but we haven't talked too much about clothing. I have one or two shirts made out of hemp and a bag or two, but my picture of hemp is like, you know, a burlap kind of picture. Like it's the hippie fiber, but that's not actually like, that's a stereotype. That's not actually how it can be used. What are some of like the cutting edge clothing applications for hemp and how does it differ from cotton in what it does to the soil when we grow it? Well, firstly, I mean, we look at the pesticide use in cotton industry. Um, I think that, you know, the cotton industry and the hemp industry as a fabric, they're very together. I don't feel that I've experienced any pushback from the cotton sector those those types of things because most of the clothes that are out there are hemp and cotton blends and there are reasons why that because of the texture of the fabric its workability these types of things there's a nice synergy there but one of the things is looking at the usage of water in cotton which is which is extreme and hemp does not take as much water by any means and also the general pesticide application in in cotton whether it be for a herbicide some sort of bug or a a fungicide that we're not seeing in the production of industrial hemp so culturally and environmentally going back to what happens on the farm is number one key and then if you look at the qualities of the fibers because of that long fiber it's just a much stronger fiber has a longer tensile strength, uh, breathability, um, and also for, you know, just that wicking factor and being able to dry out so much quicker. Are we going to be seeing cotton farmers replace what they're growing with hemp? Are they cutting over? Well, I think we could see that. Absolutely. I think all farmers out there about how can I diversify my farm? How can I save the family farm? How can I look at the next cutting edge properties that can be built into my farming structure. Um, so I do see, I, I will imagine that farmers from all sectors, whether it be in the bean production to the cotton production, will look at industrial hemp as an opportunity to increase their farm gate and diversify their crop rotation. That's awesome. It, it sounds a bit though like kind of a politically correct answer. Um, well, I don't want to put you on the spot so much, but like, no. okay, you're a cotton guy, you're using X amount of water, there's a drought, you're using X amount of pesticide and you make X amount of money. If you mm-hmm. were to like plow all that crap under and plant hemp, you're going to use less water and less chemicals. Um, but like economically, like, are you going to make the same amount of money from the hemp fiber as you did 
Like, is it more profitable to grow hemp or more profitable to grow cotton with the, the worst of the techniques? I, I think that we'd have to say, I mean, the, the fact is, is that number one, we're not growing hemp for textiles really globally, unless you look at Asia and China, particularly the rest of the fiber is going into non-wovens and composite okay. types of applications. So we don't really know. We have to examine infrastructure. Like how do we take this crop that's growing and we turn it into a piece of fabric versus um, using it as a non-woven does that infrastructure really exist anymore in North America to work with long bass fibers? Most of that infrastructure, even if you look at historically the cordage factories that were built for World War II, where are they? Those four factories were built to make hemp rope. Those factories are decrepit and they're, they're tore down. So we used to have, you know, we used to have this framework and infrastructure to work with these types of fibers even into the 40s that since then have just totally been wiped out from our, our memory base and are no longer part of, uh, you know, the infrastructure to deliver those raw ingredients to. So it's an issue about looking at infrastructure to use bass fibers. So if you're one of those new wave hemp entrepreneurs flocking, say, to Colorado and Washington State, uh, where, where my parents live, <laughs> and you're looking at all this, this uh, you know, medical use, there's a ton of this fiber, and it seems like, I mean, there's actually venture money flowing in now. Like, like there's, there's big money, even hedge fund people are getting into it. So mm -hmm. one of the things you might consider is, what do you do with all the stuff that people aren't going to be consuming? And if you find an answer for that, it's not that hard with 3D printing and, and just the modern ability to create machinery almost out of thin air uh, to recreate some of these old technologies. So I suspect that just like, you know, Levi made more money off the gold rush than the gold miners, that people who figure out what to do with these fibers may actually make as much yeah. money as the people who are producing food. Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to non-wovens, when it comes to composite, when it comes to press board, when it comes to plastic gizmos that go in the car, I mean, all of these types of things, that's all something that we could incorporate a little bit of hemp or 100% hemp into with other components. So there's a lot of opportunity out there for the, the entrepreneur spirit, which we see in full force, people wanting to know, how do I get in? What do I need to do? Um, you know, a hemp eyewear. I just uh, helped a oh, Kickstarter wow. for hemp eyewear out of the UK. And here's an, a, a situation where Sam was a university student, and I love this, university student, like myself, found a passion in him and you know now it's his business it's going to be his life work right now is to put out these hemp glasses so he's got a kickstarter going to do hemp sunglasses and i think it's great right he took something from academia and now he's out there following his hemp dream so there's so many like that awesome we're coming up on the end of the podcast, and I want to make sure that I ask you this question, which I've asked every guest on the show, and I have no idea what your answer is going to be. <laughs> it's a question about people who want to perform better. So given everything you know, not just about hemp, but your entire life's journey, the three most important pieces of advice you have for people who want to perform better, that it doesn't matter perform better at what, but just at whatever it is they're here to do, top three pieces of advice. Top three pieces of advice for me is be honest to yourself because we have a hard time being honest to ourselves. And I, I battle that all the time saying, what can I handle? How much can I handle? You know, how can I still do the work I do and be true to who I am? So number one, try to, you know, be honest with yourself. And if it's too much, you have to voice and ask for help. 
Um, secondly, really look at where your food is coming from. Uh, for me, it's really important. I grow a lot of my food. There's in, in traveling, we there's always levels where we ha- we lose control of what's happening in our in our food spectrum. So that's something that's become more present and prevalent to me. And I, another one, as I say, really connecting with people that you care about. And I just came from my 20th class reunion and I got the opportunity to connect with people that I care so much about that I had lost touch with that I actually got a little bit part of myself back by reconnecting with them. So I think that that's important just to say, you know, hey, I love you or, you know, we were such good friends and, and realizing in that. And those are my three. Be honest to yourself, you know, think about what you eat and, and stay connected. Love those three. Thank you for sharing them. And thanks for reminding me that my my 10th uh, MBA anniversary is coming up here uh, in San Francisco. So to all my Wharton friends, hey, I'm going to see you there, even though it's a crazy flight to get there. Uh, It (laughs) it is worth taking time uh, for relationships in life. So I thank you for highlighting that. Would you please share hemp-technologies.com and any other URLs that our listeners should know about? We'll put these in the show notes to make sure they're available, but people who are driving oftentimes just want to hit it right on their cell phone. Oh, right. Exactly. So, of course, hemp-technologies.com. Definitely look at thehia.org. This is the Hemp Industry Association. In addition, uh, hemptrade.ca, the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance. Those are really key. And definitely take action. We're not going to have the political push if you're not voicing your voice as a constituent to your congressional leaders, either on the federal level or on the state level. So go to votehemp.com. Real simple. Go to that Take Action tab. Put in your zip code, because we still are fighting a political battle in the United States, having industrial hemp recognized as an agricultural crop. And your voice does matter when it comes to that time. We'll be up on Capitol Hill for the Hemp Industry Association's annual conference. We have a full lobby day up there. So in the U.S., it's definitely important to you know pick up that phone and say, I'm a constituent and I care about the rights of American farmers to cultivate industrial hemp. Wonderful. Andrea, thank you for being on the podcast today and have an awesome day. Hey, you too, Dave. Thanks to all you and all your team. Not that many people know it, but the first company I started was a t-shirt company when I was about 20. It turns out that company was the first company to sell anything over the internet, the very first working example of e-commerce. And it was featured in lots and lots of magazines in the early to mid-90s because it was such an innovation. Well, I'm back in the t-shirt business because you can get the new Bulletproof Executive t-shirts and they're better than any t-shirt I've ever made before. If you want to look really good in a super high quality t-shirt that doesn't cost a lot of money, head on over to UpgradedSelf.com and see how cool these t-shirts are. They fit amazingly well, they're super soft, and they're really affordable, especially for a t-shirt that's this high quality. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. 
This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.